Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, good morning, Venture. Happy Father's Day. Shout out to everyone here and those up in classic Happy Father's Day. Those of you who are watching online, I wish you were here. Uh, You're gonna wish you were here. The car show, the pizzas, all this happening out there. Make sure that you celebrate dad well today. He's a father of seven, grandfather of five. Uh, I, I like today. It's a good day with this. And of course, we gotta have a few dad jokes. You know, it's Father's Day. Let me just give you a few here. Dad, you can use these later if your kids aren't here especially. So what did the zero say to the eight? That belt looks good on you. (laughs) Yes, some of you are catching up here with it there. I only know 25 letters of the alphabet. I don't know why. (laughs) I'm afraid for the calendar. Its days are numbered. This is maybe my favorite. What's brown and sticky? A stick. Yeah. And then the final one, a skeleton walks into a bar and he says, hey, bartender, I'll have one beer and a mop. Yeah, you're catching on with it quick. Now we do have uh, one beer, one root beer for every guy today. Hopefully you won't need a mop with yours, but uh, I, I do really encourage you today and I, I know with Father's Day, there's, there's mixed emotions out of all of it. There's huge celebrations. And as a dad, I, I love today, not, not so much for what you get. I love today because it's a reminder of the gift I've been given. Uh, being a father's a gift. And, and I say that after nine years of infertility, I know the pain of wanting to be a dad. And I, I know as well today, many have lost your dad. Uh, and I know what that's like, or broken family, I had that as well. And so there's, there's a, a mix that comes with all of us. But scripture in Romans, remember we had that scripture, it says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And this is one of those days that we need to rejoice well in both the gift of fatherhood and also the fathers that we have. And it may be a day that you think of somebody that today's not a happy day for them. And so in your rejoicing, you look and go, hey, who do I need to reach out to? Who do I need to connect with? Who may be missing their dad today? Because it's pretty fresh in it. Before we dive in the message, I I just want to take a moment and can we just pray together as a church family? Father, we thank you. We thank you for today. We thank you for Father's Day. We thank you for great dads. We thank you for so many who've been blessed with fathers who pointed them to you, invested in them, set them up for life. Lord, as dads, we thank you for our kids. What gifts that you've given us the privilege to impact the future through our kids. You have blessed our hearts and our lives with them. And I pray we'd remember that today. Lord, I pray for those today who maybe today just brings back some painful memories. A dad that they missed. A dad who really wasn't there for them. Maybe some broken relationships. Lord, I I thank you that you've called us that we get to celebrate as a family together in both the highs and the lows. 
And I pray we'd always be mindful of it. Lord, I, I thank you most of all that in your way of relating to us as humans, you've chosen to be father. You've invited us into your family. Lord, I pray that we'd rest in that today. I, I pray we'd find hope in it today. I pray every person here could approach you as father, could call you dad like Jesus taught us to do. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of James' words today. I pray that it would speak to all of us and especially to those of us who are dads. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are back in the book of James and uh, we'll, we'll take a couple more weeks in James. I'm gonna be out for a few weeks after this Sunday. Uh, some vacation, some study and work leave with it. And uh, I'm excited for you guys. Uh, you're gonna hear from Chuck, he'll continue on in James. And then we've got some guest speakers but uh, ones that go long time back with us. Chip Ingram's gonna come and speak for us. And then uh, John Dickerson, uh, both who've been teaching pastors here. So you got some special weeks. I'm, I'm excited for what's in front of us. But as we look at the book of James today, I didn't prepare a special Father's Day message, but I can't think of a better passage for those of us who are dads. As the passage for all of us, it'll apply to all of us. But especially as we get into the end of it, I'm gonna apply it specifically for those of us as dads. Because in this passage in James chapter three, if you got your Bibles, you can turn there. If you want the blue Bible in the room, it's page 1200. And we'll also have it on the screen with it. In this passage, James is talking about wisdom. And I don't know about you, as a, as a dad, there's nothing I crave or need more than wisdom. The wisdom to, to know how to do life, the wisdom to know how to parent well, the wisdom to know how to lead my own life so that others can follow in it. And, and this has been a theme throughout the book of James. And in fact, if you read through James, in some ways it reads like the wisdom books of the Old Testament. He's probably very well versed in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the other wisdom books in it. And he structures his book in that way. If you read through Proverbs, it kind of jumps around between topics in it. And in some ways, James is kind of jumping around as he's addressing to believers, how do you live out your life? How do you live out real faith in life? And in James 3.13, we look at it there. He tells us and comes back to this topic of wisdom, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And again, we, we've seen this in James. He'll hit a theme and then he'll leave it and then come back to it again. So now he's coming back to this theme of wisdom and he says, hey, who is wise in you? And, and he's talking to Christians, remember. Who's living this out? And, and we defined wisdom back in chapter one when we talked about this. It says, wisdom is the ability to discern or judge what is true or right or lasting. Uh, wisdom is not just knowledge. It's not information. It's not just being educated. You can be a very educated, unwise person. Uh, they're walking around all over. Now, I don't say that against education. Those two are, are not against each other. In fact, having knowledge can lead to great wisdom. But it's no given just because I know things that I'm wise, especially as James is using it here. 
Notice as well though, he, he puts this line by his good conduct. Everything in James is, if you have faith, you need to have works. And in the same way, if you have wisdom, wisdom shows up in your conduct. So wisdom's the combination of belief and behavior. It's not just knowing what to do. It's not just knowing what is true. It's not just knowing what is right. That's part of wisdom, having that discernment to know what is right and true and real. James says, yeah, true wisdom though, it actually shows up in behavior. And, and here's the thing about it and the reason he's writing Christians about it, if you read through the Bible, there are people that even had wisdom, but when they started disconnecting their belief and their behavior, they started acting really foolish. In fact, the wisest guy who ever walked on the planet other than Jesus is a man named Solomon. And Solomon is a young man. God, God looked at him and says, you can have anything you want. And he asked for wisdom. And God made him wise. People would come from around the world to hear Solomon speak, to adjudicate on matters. He wrote many of the Proverbs that we have. And, and despite his wisdom, as he got later in life, at some point, his appetites caught up with him. His sexual appetites, his appetite for power. And in that, this disconnect between what he knew and his belief and his behavior led to great foolishness. Now, in his humility, we've got a wisdom book called Ecclesiastes where Solomon looks back on the whole journey of the thing and he goes, whoa, I thought that's what I wanted. And I realized how foolish it was. And, and I say this because no matter where you are on your journey, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you may be a person who you've walked for years with Jesus. You may be somebody that everybody looks to you. There's this caution and James is calling us to it. The moment you start saying, well, yeah, I believe these things to be true, but I let my behavior just totally drift in that. You can become foolish too. Wisdom's not this repository that once you have it, man, I just sit on it forever. There's this engagement in it of the two together. In fact, as, as James lays it out, he's gonna distinguish between what we would call godly wisdom and earthly wisdom. Because you throw out the word wisdom and you can go, well, what wisdom are you talking about? I mean, yeah, philosophers talk about wisdom. You can go back in history, people talk about wisdom today. And in this next passage, he goes, let me distinguish these two for you. Look at this one. He says, if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. And here's what I want you to note in this section. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Notice he, he's drawn this line between two types of wisdom. And so the first wisdom is this worldly wisdom. And, and notice in that he says, it's a bottom up wisdom. It's from the created order. It's earthly. It doesn't come from above. It, it came from below. It's what we came up with. It's that process that in Romans one, when, when Romans talks about the judgment of the world, it really comes down to this dividing line point. Did we as the created order look to a God beyond us or did we look and go, no, this is it and we can figure it out. And we, we've got our own system. We can come to truth on our own as it builds up with that. 
Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, I told you he wrote on wisdom and he, he talks about it and he makes this evaluation. And if you read through the book, he has this one line over and over. He says, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. That's his way of saying everything below God. All of this created world with it. Look how he puts it in, in Ecclesiastes 1.14. He says, I've seen everything that's done under the sun. Uh, behold, it's all vanity and striving after the wind. I mean, he, he summarizes with it. If you start with just an earthly wisdom, if your limitation is what we can come up with on our own and build upward, Solomon said, man, I saw the whole system and I don't think it works. And, and it's fascinating because we're living in the fruit of that right now. Uh, you, you watch how it goes through history and, and it is fascinating. You go all the way back to the enlightenment. Before the enlightenment, most people said, yeah, there, there's a divine before that. With the enlightenment, Descartes said, oh, we should start doubting everything. And, and remember, he, he got down to that one phrase, that cogito ergo sum, that, that I, I think, therefore I am. And what he's saying in that is, I, I doubt anything exists. I'm trying to find out what is objective truth. And so I'm gonna have my starting point be, well, I must be thinking, so I must exist. And let me build out from there. Now, Descartes said that you could build from there to God, but we know quickly within the philosophical system, Kant and others came and they said, actually, we can come to objective truth. We don't need God. We don't even need this thought of God anymore. God is kind of the, the figment, the fantasy of the ancients. We've discovered rational truth. We can build a world with it. And then Darwin, who, who came with the scientific system of applying the microevolution to a macro level said, hey, we can, we can determine how the world got here as well. And, and so you, you take all of it together and we live in an age and in that age of the enlightenment, it was we can discover what is objective truth. We don't need God for that. Now, the problem is postmodernism came along and the postmoderns rightly said, wait a second, you can discover objective truth? Well, how do you know it's true for everybody? I mean, it might be true for you because you've been conditioned by the way you see the world, where you grew up, your education, different parts of it. So of course you think it's true, but how do you know that their truth is not true? And, and then it took another phase where the system we built up to, and we're living in the fruit of it now where people would say, whatever's true to you is true. Whatever's true to me is true. And, and there's no objective one truth. Everyone discovers it themselves. This is exactly guys what James is talking about. When you start with the earthly system and you build it, you run into this kind of wisdom of the world. As you look at it as well, it, it's what comes naturally to a person. It's what, what I feel, it's what is in my gut. It's how I determine myself, it's how I define myself. And so categories even that have been fixed for ages, I mean, in the last few years you're seeing, man, there are no more categories. The redefinition all the time. Proverbs said it in this way, there's a way that seems right to a man, but, it's, but the end of the way is death. There's a way that seems right to everyone. Of course you have your gut. Of course you have your truth. Of course you would look at it and go, yeah, this is what's right for me. And no one else can speak into that. And Proverbs goes, yeah, this has always been true about people. The, the problem is not where it started. The problem is where does it end? 
And, and you end up in this place, you end up in these categories that, that worldly wisdom always leads there. The, the last term he uses about it is demonic. And, and he's not saying this to be spooky, ooh, demonic. You gotta be scared with it. He, what he's talking about is just a demonic way of thinking. That you go always, all the way back to Satan and then the angels that rebelled with him who chose, they said, we don't wanna be servants in heaven. What is it, Milton's famous line? Satan said, I'd rather be the ruler of hell than a servant in heaven. And, and basically that demonic expression is, I wanna do life my way, not God's way. I define my truth, I define what's right. I want the freedom to do what I want to do. And from that time in the beginning of creation on, it's what he's been whispering in humanity's ear is you need to do you and you express you and, and your way, what you feel, what your gut, that's what's true. And it's true for you. We, we think these expressions and what we're experiencing right now is, oh, it's also brand new. Guys, it's some of the same tapes that have been playing from the beginning. And, and, and James says, you gotta decide are, are you gonna choose a worldly wisdom and look at the fruit of that? There's a book a few years ago, David Myers wrote a book, it was written, uh, printed by Yale University, The American Paradox, and here's the subtitle, Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty. And he, he writes in the book, he says, we're better fed, better paid, better housed, better educated, healthier than ever before with more human rights, faster communication, more convenient transportation than we've ever known. I mean, this is a given. But alongside of this are all these signs of life in pain and travail. Since 1960, the divorce rate has doubled and it's beyond that now. Teen suicide has more than tripled. Violent crime has quadrupled. Number of people in prison quintupled. Illegitimate children six times sextupled. Those cohabitating sevenfold. I mean, you just look at it, all these things that come out of it. And, and there's this way that seems right to us, but then you look at all the evidence and you go, where is this leading? Is this working? the way that everyone says it is? I, I love the line of Socrates. You go back thousands of years ago, considered one of the wisest people that ever walked this planet. He's got this line that says, all of the wisdom of this world is but a tiny raft upon which we must set sail when we leave this earth. And then he says this line, if only there was a firmer foundation upon which to sail. He says, you take all the wisdom of humanity, it's just a tiny raft. And when you leave the planet, you're setting sail on that if you've chosen to do life under the sun. He says, I wish there was a firmer foundation, perhaps some divine word. He said, wouldn't it be great instead of we gotta build it from us up, there actually was the divine and he's spoken and he's acted. See, James is telling us there is. There is a different way. You don't have to live that way. He knows the divine has spoken <laughs> because the divine was his older brother. 
and he saw him and he saw him post-resurrection and he saw him speak and he knew the truth of what was said from God. That this godly wisdom, it's top down, it's from God. That's why Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom for the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It all begins with a fear of God. It all begins with a choice, a recognition. And, and I would say this, every person that walks on the planet, you've got to make a decision. Is wisdom, is what I'm going to believe built on what we build up or am I by faith going to believe that God has spoken down? Do, do I ride the raft of human wisdom as Socrates described it? Or would I actually believe there is a firmer foundation because God spoke that in the beginning God spoke, that through Christ God spoke, that it's from God. See, wisdom starts with that choice. And then with it, it requires revelation from God. It requires God revealing himself within time and space. And the greatest revelation is the good news of Christ. That's why Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To those who've made that choice, there's a way that seems right to me. Now the end of it is death. Paul says, they're on a slow train of perishing. This is not gonna work and it ultimately will not work in eternity. But they look at the cross, they look at the message, look at the good news and they go, that just feels like foolishness. I'm a person of reason, I can't live by faith. You live by faith like that. Now, I, I would argue we all live by faith. Every system requires some faith. It's just do you have the honesty to face that or not? But, but Paul goes, I get it. Most people, they hear it. Maybe you hear it today and you go, ah, yeah, that just, it feels kind of foolish. Paul goes, that's been the natural response. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. That, that no matter how wise the world system looks, ultimately God says, my truth will prevail. That requires then a humility of heart. That's why he calls it the meekness of wisdom in the verse. It requires every single person, and, and I, I recognize this, to come to this juncture, because this is a pretty powerful dividing road of what you're gonna choose to live your life, where, where you're gonna choose to get wisdom. Do I choose to get wisdom from a world system or from what other people have said? Do I choose to get wisdom from what feels right to me or my truth, or I know it's true, I just feel it inside? That's one side of it. Or do I choose in humility? To go, you know, I need God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I need a savior. And by faith, I'm gonna believe in him. I mean, th this is the dividing line of all of it. Now, as you hear that, let's just take a few minutes and look at the differences between what he describes happens when you follow the path of worldly wisdom and then what he describes what this, this wisdom, godly wisdom is supposed to look like in our life. Look, look at his description with this. We'll go back to these verses. He's describing this earthly vis wisdom. He says, if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. He's thrown out a number of descriptors of this, of a life that's, that's bent on this path of earthly wisdom. 
Look at the different parts of it. He says this worldly wisdom out of it. One, bitter jealousy. There's a sense of bitter jealousy. Envy is another way of putting it. Is unhappiness because of constant comparison. You see that anywhere in our world? Feel that anywhere? Uh, it, it, interesting, there was an article written in The Guardian, uh, a woman named Moya Sarner, and she said that she feels like envy is more present in our everyday lives than ever before, mainly thanks to social media. We, we not only compare ourselves to our friends and neighbors, as people have always done, all the way back to James Day, people always struggle with the comparison like this, but now online, we now have to measure up against people all over the globe, celebrities and strangers, friends of friends. One therapist has coined this term, comparisonitis. He says it's a, a real sickness, it's an emotional sickness and it can't be intellectualized and it can't be curbed by willpower. As he's dealing with people that they're stuck, they're just the comparisonitis, their whole life's lived in comparison, especially through social media, that no matter how much their willpower, no much they intellectually know this, they can't get out of it. Almost an addiction to it. Sarner goes on to write, no age group or social class is immune from this bitter jealousy and envy. Ethan Krauss, he's a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. He writes that envy is, been, is being taken to an extreme. We're constantly bombarded by Photoshopped lives. And that exerts a toll on us, the likes of which we've never experienced in the history of our species. And the results are not pleasant. Yeah, that's the understatement of the century. It's just a fruit of a system. James says, hey, it should be a marker if you're looking up and that's what you're seeing around. It's what worldly wisdom leads to because if I'm doing everything from the bottom up, I need to compare to everybody else because we're all trying to get ahead. I don't, I don't have anything to measure against that's outside of this. I don't have truth that's spoken to me. And so it starts bottom up with this comparison, this envy. Look at the second thing, selfish ambition. You're unfulfilled because life is about me. I make life about myself. Now, let me be clear, because sometimes people teach, especially in church, you, you, we teach against ambition itself. Uh, there's nothing in scripture that teaches a, a, against ambition. In fact, I would say Christians should be the most ambitious people on this planet. Christians should be the most diligent and ambitious and trying to make a difference. Here's the key. It's who are you doing it for? We're called, man, as part of God's family, of course we're supposed to be ambitious, but we do it for God's glory. We do it to go, go take this planet all the way back at the beginning, that hard wiring when he says, go rule, go fill the earth, go take this planet for his glory. Whatever he's called you to, whatever field you're in, Whatever's put in front of you, I hope you go for it. I hope you apply yourself. I hope that you make a difference. I hope that you impact this world for God's glory. That, that when, when you give it to him as an offering, because here's what it does. It gives you a transcendent purpose that's beyond yourself. See, when you make it about self, when I'm doing all of those exact same things, when my ambition is for me, it is so unfulfilling. 
because I'll never be big enough. And that's why this is the recipe. You want a midlife crisis? Live for selfish ambition. Because you know what happens, especially in a group like this with a lot of sharp and smart people, you'll actually reach your goals. And then you look up and you go, uh, now what? Because I was living for me and I'm not really satisfied with it. James says worldly wisdom as well. There's a lot of boasting. There's a lot of boasting. And, and usually when you see boasting, you're trying to convince yourself and others. A lot of people boast to convince themselves how great they are more than anybody else. And, and I would again say that we live in an age where if there was ever a platform for boasting, social media is it. So that we can frame ourselves in the perfect angle and the perfect light. And we talk about our perfect day and our perfect spouse and our perfect kids who got into the perfect college and the perfect vacation and all the perfect things with it. And then, you know, because we're Christians, we add blessed hashtag, you know, it's like, you know, all, all those things with it. James says, man, when, when the system starts here up, of course you have to say those things all the time. But who are you trying to convince? There's disorder. This word here is actually, it's relational friction. Relationships at home, relationships with each other, relationships with friendships. And I, I don't need to go through the litany of stats to tell you how this is not working in a world where people are this blessed. And then he says, bio practices. And it's just a term, these are the, the hidden behavior that often show up in our lives as an outlet. It's this, you know, if life's not working there, I'm not happy here. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow myself this outlet. I'm gonna allow myself to do this. I don't want anybody else to know about it. I'm gonna give myself a little freedom here. We call ourselves freedom. This is where it's demonic. We call ourselves freedom and then we become enslaved to it. <laughs> Boy, you talk about a deceptive twist that happens out of that. He, he, he just describes it. He goes, hey, as much as it might seem right to you, if you're starting here with you and you're trying to build life up, these are the things that show up. And, and then he contrasts it he contrasts it with, with godly wisdom. He says the wisdom from above. So this is from God, it's from above. And look at the characteristics. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And, and as I, I look, every one of these characteristics, you go, ah, oh, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I wanna live. In fact, I, I want to walk through these characteristics. We'll just look at them. And I want to apply specifically, I, I just, you know, being Father's Day in this week, I, I was really praying and applying these things to me as a dad. And so I, I'm going to apply it to fathers, but it's for all of you, by the way. But we're going to apply it to fathers. Look, look at the characteristics of godly wisdom. The first one, it's pure. Do I have a commitment to an uncontaminated life? I, I, I want to live in purity. I want to live in that truth. I don't want to fall for those lies. I, I, I don't want to allow any of that in. And, and that word purity, it's, it's the root is same as like holiness, the character of God in it, that I'm choosing to do that. 
that I'm, I'm, I'm not allowing, you know, a little bit in, that I'm kind of pure, mostly pure. Sometimes we talk ourselves into that. If I had two glasses of water up here and I told you this one is absolutely, it's pure water, crystal clear, distilled. And then I have the other glass and I go, it's, it's mostly pure. In fact, it's 99% pure, 99% water, 1% E. coli, but you know, it's, it's <laughs> mostly pure. Which one are you gonna drink? And James says it's the same way. Man, you're getting, it's a wisdom from above. And so here's what you always know. Anything you get from God, anything you read in his word, any of that truth, you know it is absolutely pure and right. And so the question I have as a dad, and when I look at my home, I go, man, what, what thoughts am I allowing to contaminate my life? And maybe it's the error, things that I, I look at out there. Am I, am I taking every one of those thoughts captive? Am I discerning with it? Am I looking at the message behind the message so that I can live this kind of life? Look at the second characteristic, it's peaceful. You make and maintain good relationships. Here's a question I have for you if you're a dad. I'm a dad. Is your home more peaceful when you're there than when you're not? Are people more at peace around you? As a boss, in relationships, and when you show up, does the drama show up with you? Or is there a sense of peace? And, and here's another one for us as dads. Are you willing to make peace? Peace doesn't just happen. So, you know, and, and I've done this. I come home, especially when the kids are young and that and different ones, and they're fighting and the activity is going. But I have worked so hard all day. And I just want to sit in my chair and maybe the noise and the chaos and fighting will just go away on its own. And yet in the partnership of this marriage, God's given me a, a power as a dad to be able to step into that and to make peace, not just hope it happens. And so I can't just rest in my passivity and hope maybe this disorder that's happening, and, and by the way, this doesn't just happen with little kids, it can happen all different ages. Are you a peacemaker? That's what Christians are called to. That's what worldly wisdom doesn't produce, but godly wisdom does. Gentle, and again, this is a great word for dads. When you see gentle, you always think power under control for the protection of others. You know, as a, as a dad who's given a couple of daughters in marriage, that's the one thing I asked both my son-in-laws. I, I looked at him and said, I need you to be two things. I need you to be powerful because she needs a powerful husband. She needs someone who steps forward and you'll use everything in your ability to protect her and live for her. But you've got to combine that power with gentleness that you would never use that power against her. So that your power actually produces for a wife and for kids and a home, it produces that sense of peace because they know that power is always for their good and they can rest in it. 
Oh, I wish he hadn't have put this one on here. Open to reason. And here's what the term means. Willing to listen and change my mind. Here's why I, I, right now I know my wife and my kids, they are underlining this one. <laughs> this will haunt me. That's the hard part about being a preacher. You preach these things up here and it's great up here and then you get home and your family goes, okay, we actually gonna do that one or not? And, then, and there's this sense and let's be honest, as dad, I mean, sometimes it's just like, it's my way, we're done. And, and James is not saying be wishy-washy. You need to know your mind, but you need to be willing to change your mind. You need to be willing to listen to others. That there's a place to be reasonable within that. Merciful. This is foregoing what is deserved for what is needed. And, and, and this one is so powerful because you think about how merciful God is with us. And he's a father. Grace is the fact that God did not give us what we deserve or that God gave us what we didn't deserve. Mercy is the other side of it. God doesn't give us what we do deserve. See, grace, by grace, he gives us salvation in Christ. By grace, he gives us forgiveness. By grace, Christ died on the cross. All of those things were undeserved. There's not a person on the planet that deserved God to treat us that way. The flip side is, is mercy is God doesn't always give us what we deserve. God doesn't always punish us in the moment. In fact, Lamentation says his, his mercies are new every day. You're gonna need some mercy from God today, whether you realize it or not. And, and I, I think about this as a dad, and I, I just challenge us as dads, do we extend mercy? I, I see so many parents today kind of falling into one of two sides, and both of them are really fearful parenting. I see a lot of young parents who are very fearful and I think part of it is you read all the things online and everybody's talking to you, just listen to me in, in wisdom. One version of fearful parenting is I see parents who are scared to death to discipline their kids because the kids are gonna be mad at me. I'm gonna damage them for life. All, all the things that you kind of hear out there. And, and that's a huge mistake, by the way. They need discipline. But the other side of it, there's another version of fearful parents. They're so scared they're gonna mess up in any way. Man, the discipline is so rigid. And I'm gonna discipline every moment. And I'm gonna make sure in that. And there's never any mercy. And if we're honest, that's not how God disciplines us. And so, so wisdom calls us to that place of how do I come as a good father? Because Hebrew says God is a good father disciplines us but he does it with mercy. There's some times that you come along and you recognize even, even when a child, yes, they've done wrong, but you know what's needed in the moment more than the discipline? They need the mercy of a dad who comes alongside. And, and that happens, it's powerful in a kid's life. Uh, you know, I love the story Shay Serrano tells that, that he was driving along one day and his, his car just stopped. And he goes, I know nothing about vehicles. I looked at it and finally he called the tow truck, had it towed home and he called his dad. He said, dad, I don't know what to do. And his dad said, well, I'll come tomorrow. His dad knew how to fix cars and vehicles. His dad was a bus driver. So his dad had a 10 hour shift driving buses and then Shay lived over 200 miles away from him. 
So as soon as his dad got off work, he got in the car and he made the three hour drive to Shea. Got there, he got his tools out, went over to the car, opened the hood for a minute, looked around for literally just two minutes, shut it, put his tools away. And Shea said, oh, is it that bad? And his dad said, no, son, you're just out of gas. <laughs> they went in the house, they had dinner. After dinner, his dad got in the car and drove the 200 miles home because he had to work the next day. He said, here, here was the thing that stood out to me other than my foolishness of how could I not know I was out of gas. He said, despite the fact my dad worked that long day, despite the long drive, he never said a word about it. He never shamed me at dinner. He didn't rebuke me, he didn't turn it into this big teachable moment. He said, we just had dinner. And, and when he wrote these words, he said, it's been nine years since that day. He's never brought it up once. You know why that stands out so much to him? It's the mercy of a father. And I think for all of us as dads, we ask, does that mark our homes and life? Fruitful, God's producing real change in my life. And this is where it's gotta be a God thing. He's gotta do it. Christians are not Christmas trees. We're not Christmas trees that we can go hang some kind of fake fruit on it and go, ooh, look at my Christian life. It doesn't work that way. Now, Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. So if fruit's gonna happen, it's gotta come from him. It's not what I hung on the tree. Impartial, you don't play favorites. Few things destroy a household more. Few things will damage the life of children more than playing favorites with them. And then the last one he says is sincere. And the word literally is unhypocritical. If you read it in the Greek, that's where we get it from. No hypocrisy between what I say and what I do. And this one's hard because if you live with kids, they know. <laughs> they do, they just know. And so it's this point that you, you gotta tell yourself, okay, am I actually gonna live out the things I'm teaching them? Or are we just gonna pretend like these are family values? But nobody really takes them seriously. And, and I promise you, if that's what you do, that's what they'll take with you. Now, if you're like me, you go, man, I need this list. I want this list. I, let me close out. And I got this from Kent Hughes and, and it's just great. He walks through, he says, hey, if you're a dad, if you're a person, if you're going, I want this kind of wisdom. Let me, let me just tell you, it's very straightforward. It's right here in your notes with it, but humbly choose to look to God as the source of the wisdom. You're gonna have to look to God and go, the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. And so there's a point in every person's life, you've got to decide, do I actually believe in God and will I actually look to him to be the source of wisdom? The second part with that is you gotta embrace the good news of what Christ has done for you. It's not enough just to acknowledge God. You have to acknowledge what he's done. You've got to receive it. That's why Paul says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring about the things that are so that human beings might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus because of what God's done for us. And look at that, Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. 
Hear me, that dividing point when I talked about, at the core of that dividing point stands the cross of Jesus Christ. And every person has to decide which one's gonna define my life. And Paul says here, man, when you recognize God and you allow the cross to be your defining point, he becomes the wisdom of God for us. Third, spend every day in his work. Spend every day. You're not gonna be wise if you don't know God's word. And David, I love how he puts it. He just said, I love your law. I love your word. It's my meditation. Your commandment makes me wiser. I have your understanding. I have more than my teacher. Your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged for I keep your precepts. He's just going, hey, you know how I got ahead. You know how I'm wise. I spend time with God's word every day. And then the final one is pretty simple. Prayerfully ask for wisdom every day. Ask for it. Look, look at this. If any of you lacks wisdom, this is from James, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Now, why would God give generously like this? Because he's a dad. And that's what good dads do. I, I, I'm telling you, there's few things that give me more joy then when my kids have a need and I can meet it, I can help them. Man, in that moment of being able to go, oh. In fact, sometimes they have a need longer than they should have and they finally come to you and they go, hey dad, could you help here? Dad, I can't do this. Dad, I need this. And in that moment, sometimes I'm sitting there telling myself, man, I wish you told me earlier. I love doing this. And that's how God feels about you. And one of the things he loves the most is dad. He loves to give wisdom. He, he loves to change us in a way that all those fruits I was talking about, all those attributes, man, I'm not gonna be able to produce them, but God can in me. And he actually wants to give it to every single one of us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just your generosity. That as a good father, you have given us everything. You gave us a grace we didn't deserve. You gave us forgiveness through Christ we absolutely didn't deserve. You give us mercy by not giving us the punishment every day we do deserve. Lord, you love to give wisdom. You, you just tell us. I pray, would we believe that today? Would we trust you enough that as a good father, we would ask you to show up in our lives and to bless us with this gift that you love to give? And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.